Hello and welcome to the First Person Drunk Podcast. Today we have Danny's Own Story by Don Marquis, Chapter 10. Now, if you've been listening since the beginning, I'd like you to take just a little moment to uh, to take pride in the fact that you have made it to Chapter 10. Chapter 10 is a landmark chapter. There are 24 chapters in Danny's Own Story. And uh, this is a fraction thereof that you have now accomplished. So, congratulations to you. As always, First Person Drunk is brought to you by me, Miles Tabor, by Delicious Whiskey, and by the public domain. Any errors in the text you hear are the fault of one of those three. I didn't exactly faint there. But things got all mixed for me, and when they were straightened out again, I was in a hospital. It seems I had been considerable stepped on in that fight, and three ribs was broke. I knowed I was hurting, but I was so interested in what was happening to the doctor, the whole hurt never come to me till the balloon was way out over the lake. But now I was in a plaster cast, and before I got out of that, I was in a fever. I was some weeks getting out of there. I tried to get some word of Dr. Kirby, but couldn't. Nothing had been heard of him or the balloon. The newspapers had had stuff about it for a day or two, and they guessed the body might come to light sometime, but that was all, and I didn't know where to hunt or how. The horses and wagon and tent and things worried me some, too. They wasn't mine, so I couldn't sell them. And they wasn't good, wasn't no good to me without Dr. Kirby. So I tells the man that owns the livery stable to use the team for its board and keep it till Dr. Kirby calls for it. And if he never does, maybe I will sometime. I didn't want to stay in that town, or I could have got a job in the livery stable. They offered me one, but I hated that town. I wanted to light out. I didn't much care where to. Them Blanchett brothers had left a good share of the money we took in at the Balloon Ascension with the hospital people for me before they cleared out. But before I left that town, I seen there was one thing I had to do to make myself easy in my mind, so I done her. That was to hunt up that fellow with his eye in the patch. It took me a week to find him. He lived down near some railroad yards, and I might have soaked him with a coupling link and felt a whole lot better. But I didn't guess it would do to pet and pamper my feelings too much. So I does it with my fists in a quiet place, and does it very complete, and leaves that town in a cattle car, feeling a whole lot more contented in my mind. Then they was a whole done year i didn't stay nowhere very long nor work at any one job too long neither i just worked from place to place seeing things big towns and rivers and mountains working here and there and loafing and riding blind baggages and freight trains between jobs i covered a lot of ground that year and made some pretty big jumps and got acquainted with some awful queer folks first and last but the worst of that is lots of people gets to thinkin' I am a hobo, 
Even one or two judges in police courts I got acquainted with had that their idea of me. I always explains that I am not one, and am just traveling around to see things, and working when I feels like it, and ain't no bum. But, frequent, I am not believed. And two, three different times, I gets to the place where I couldn't hardly have told myself from a hobo, if I hadn't known I wasn't one. And I got right well acquainted with some of them hobos, too. As far as I can see, there is as much difference in them as in other humans. Uh, some travels because they likes to see things, and some because they hates to work, and some because they is in the habit and can't stop it. Well, I know myself it's pretty hard after a while to stop it, for where would you stop at? What excuse is they to stop one place more than another? Now, I met all kinds of them. And once I got in for a week with a couple of real Johnny Yeggs that is both in the pen now. I hear a fellow say one time there is some good in every man. Uh, I went the same way as them two Yegg men a whole darn week to try and find out where the good in them was. I guess there must be some mistake somewhere, for I looked hard and I watched close and I never found it. They is many kinds of hobos and tramps, professional and amateur, and lots of kinds of bums, and lots of young fellas working their way around to see things like I was, and uh, lots of working men in hard luck going from place to place, and all them kinds as humans. But the real Yegman ain't even a dog. And once I went all the way from Chicago to Baltimore, with a serious darn fool that said he was a sociologist, whatever them is, and was going to put her all into a book about the criminal classes. He worked hard trying to get at the reason I was a hobo, which they wasn't no reason, for I wasn't no hobo. But I didn't want to disappoint that fella and spoil his book for him, so I tells him things. Things not overly truthful, but very full of crime. About a year afterward, I was into one of these here Andrew Carnegie libraries with the names of the old-time presidents all chiseled along the top, and I seen the whole darn thing in print. He said of me the same thing I have said about them Yegmen. If all he met joshed that fellow the same as me, that book must have been what you might call misleading in spots. Now, one morning... I woke up in a good-sized town in Illinois, not a hundred miles from where I was raised, without no money and my clothes not much to look at and no job. I had been with a railroad show for about two weeks, driving stakes and other rough work, and it had went off and left me sleeping on the ground. Circuses never waits for nothing, nor cares a darn for no one. I tried all day around town for to get some kind of a job. But I was looking pretty rough, and I couldn't land nothing. Along in the afternoon, I was awful hungry. I was feeling pretty low down to have to ask for a meal, but finally I done it. I don't know how I ever come to pick out such a swell-looking house, but I makes a little talk at the back door, and the Irish girl, she says, Come in, and into the kitchen I goes. It's Minnesota you're working toward, asks she, pouring me out a cup of coffee. She is thinking of the wheat harvest, where there is thousands makes for every fall, but uh, none of them for me. 
that their country is full of them Scandinavian Swedes and Norwegians, and they gets into the field before daylight and stays there so long the hired man's got to milk the cows by moonlight. I've been across the river into our way, I says, a working at my trade, and now I'm going back to Chicago to work at it some more. Uh, what might your trade be, she asks, sizing me up careful. And I thinks I'll hand her one to chew on she ain't never hearin' tell of before. I'm a agnostic by trade, I says. I spotted that there word in a religious book one time, and that's the first chance I ever has to try it on anyone. You can't never tell what them regular sockdologers is gonna do till you tries them. I see, says she, but I seen she didn't see, and I didn't help her none. She would have rather died than to let on she didn't see, and the Irish is like that. Pretty soon, she says, Ain't that the dangerous kind of work, though? It is, I says, and says nothing further. She sits down and folds her arms like she was thinking of it, watching my hands closed all the time I was eating, like she's looking for scars where something slipped when I done that agnostic work. Pretty soon, she says, Me brother Michael was killed at it in the old country. He was the most venturesome lad of them all. Did it fly up and hit him? I asked her. I was wondering whether she is making fun of me, or I am making fun of her. Them Irish is like that, you can never tell which. No, she says. He fell off of it, and I'm thinking you don't know what it is yourself. And the next thing I know, I'm eased out of the back door, and she's grinning at me scornful through the crack of it. So, I was walking slow around toward the front of the house, thinking how the Irish was a great nation, and what shall I do now anyhow? And I says to myself, Danny, you was a fool to let that circus walk off and leave you asleep in this here town with nothing over you but a bobbed wire fence this morning. For what are you going to do next? First thing you know, you will be a regular tramp, which some folks can't be made to see you ain't now. And just when I was thinking that, a fella comes down the front steps of that house on the jump and nabs me by the coat collar. Did you come out of this house? he asks. I did. I says, wondering what next. Back in you go, then, he says, marching me forward toward them front steps. They've got smallpox in there. I like to have jumped loose when he says that. Uh, smallpox ain't no inducement to me, mister, I tells him. But he twisted my coat collar tight and dug his thumbs into my neck all the time, helping me onward with his knee from behind and I seen they was no use pulling back. I could probably have licked that man, but they's no system in mixing up with them well-dressed men in towns where they think you are a tramp. The judge will give you the worst of it. He rung the doorbell, and the girl that opened the door, she looked kind of surprised when she seen me, and in we went. Tell Professor Booth that Dr. Wilkins wants to see him again says the man a hole to me, not letting loose none. And we says nothing further till the professor comes, which he does, slow and absent-minded. When he seen me, he took off his glasses so as he could see me better, and he says, What is that you have there, Dr. Wilkins? 
A guest for you, says Dr. Wilkins, grinning all over himself. I found him leaving your house, and you being under quarantine, and me being secretary to the Board of Health, and the city pest house being crowded too full already, I'll have to ask you to keep him here till we get Miss Marjorie onto her feet again, he says. Or they was words to that effect, as the lawyers asked you. Dear me, says Professor Booth, kind of helpless-like, and he comes over close to me and looks me all over like I was one of them Amphimissourian lizards in a free museum. And then he goes to the foot of the stairs and sings out in a voice that was so bleached out and flat-chested it would have looked just like him himself if you could have saw it, Estelle, he sings out, oh, Estelle. Estelle, she come downstairs looking like she was the professor's big brother. I found out later she was his old maid sister. She wasn't no spring chicken, Estelle wasn't, and there was a continuous grin on her face. I figured it must have froze there years and years ago. There was a kid. About ten or eleven years old come along down with her that had hair down to its shoulders and didn't look like it knowed whether it was a girl or a boy. Miss Estelle, she looks me over in a way that makes me shiver, while the doctor and the professor jaws about whose fault it is the smallpox sign ain't been hung out. And when she was done listening, she says to the professor, You had better go back to your laboratory. And then the professor, he went along out, and the doctor with him. What are you going to do with him, Aunt Estelle? The kid asked her. What would you suggest, William, dear? Asked his aunt. I ain't feeling very comfortable, and I was getting all ready just to naturally bolt out the front door now the doctor was gone. Then... I thinks it mightn't be no bad place to stay in for a couple of days, even risking the smallpox. For I had recollected I couldn't catch it nohow, having been vaccinated a few months before in Terry Hut by compulsive medical advice, me being for a while doing some work on the city pavements through a mistake about me in the police court. William, dear, looks at me like it was the day of judgment, and his job was to keep the fatted calves separate from the goats and prodigals, and he says, If I were you, Aunt Estelle, the first thing would be to get his hair cut and his face washed, and then get him some clothes. Oh, William, dear, is my friend, thinks I. She calls James, which was a butler, and James, he buttles me into the bathroom, the like of which I never seen afore, and then he buttles me into a suit of somebody's clothes and into a room at the top of the house next to his'n, and then he comes back and buttles a comb and brush at me. James was the most mournful-looking fat man I ever seen, and he says that on account of me not being respectable, I will have my meals alone in the kitchen after the servants is at. The uh, first thing I knowed, I been in that house more than a week. I eat, and I slept, and I smoked, and I kind of enjoyed not worrying about things for a while. The only uncomfortable thing about being the professor's guest was Miss Estelle. 
Soon as she found out I was a agnostic, she took charge of my intellectuals and what went into them. And she makes me read things and asked me about them. And she says she is going for to reform me. And whatever brand o' oh, disgrace them there agnostics really is, I ain't found out to this day, having come across the word accidental. Biddy Malone, which was the kitchen mechanic, she says the professor's wife been over to her mother's while this smallpox has been going on, and they is a nurse in the house looking after Miss Marjorie, the, the little kid that's sick. And Biddy, she says if she was Mrs. Booth, she'd stay there, too. There's been some talk, anyhow, about Mrs. Booth and a musician fella around that there town, but Biddy, she likes Mrs. Booth, and even if it was true, which it ain't, Biddy says, who could have blamed her? For things ain't joyous around that house the last year since Mrs. Stell's come there to live. The professor, he's so full of scientifics, he don't know nothing with no sense to it, Biddy says. He's got more money than you can shake a stick at, and he don't have to do no work, nor never has, and his scientifics get worse and worse every year. But while scientifics is worrying to the nerves of a family, and while his laboratory often makes the house smell like a sick drugstore has crawled into it and died there, there wouldn't have been no serious row on between the professor and his wife, not all the time if it hadn't have been for Mrs. Stell. She has just naturally made herself boss of that there house, Biddy says, and she's a she-devil. Between all them scientifics and Mrs. Stell, things has got where Mrs. Booth can't stand em much longer. I didn't blame her none for getting sore on her job, neither. You can't expect a woman that's purty, and knows it, and ain't no more than thirty-two or three, and don't look it, to be serious entrusted in mummies, and pickled snakes, and chemical perfusions, not all the time. Maybe when Mrs. Booth would ask him if he was going to take her to the opera that night, the professor would look up in an absent-minded sort of way, and ask her, did she know them Germans had invented a new germ? It wouldn't have been so bad if the professor had picked out just one brand of scientifics and stuck to that regular. Mrs. Booth could have got used to any one kind. But maybe this week the professor would be took hard with ornithography and he'd go chasing hummingbirds all over the front yard. And the next he'd be putting gastronomy into William's breakfast feed. There was always a row over them kids which they hadn't been till Miss Estelle come. Mrs. Booth, she said they could kill their own selves if they wanted to, him and Miss Estelle, but she had more right than anyone else to say what went into William's and Marjorie's digestive ornaments, and she didn't want them brung up scientific know-how, but just human. But Mrs. Stell's got so she runs that whole house now, and the professor too, but he don't know it, Biddy says, and her a-saying every now and then it was too bad Frederick couldn't have married a noblewoman who would have took a serious interest in his work. The kids don't hardly dare to kiss their ma in front of Mrs. Stell no more, on account of germs and things. 
and with Miss Estelle taking care of their religious organs and their intellectuals and the things like that, and the professor filling them up on new invented feeds, I guess they never was two kids got more education to the square inch outside and in. It hadn't worked none on Miss Marjorie yet, her being younger, but William dear, he took it hard and serious, and it made bumps all over his head, and he was kind of pale and spindly. Every time that kid cut his finger, he just naturally bled scientifics. One day, I says to Miss Estelle, says I, it looks to me like William, dear, is kind of peaked. Uh, she looks worried, and she looks mad for me lipping in. And then she says maybe it's true, but she don't see why, because he is being brung up like he ought to be in every way and no expense nor trouble spared. Well, says I, what a kid about that size wants to do is to get out and roll around in the dirt some and yell and holler. She sniffs like I wasn't worth taking no notice of, but it kind of soaked in, too. She and the professor must have talked it over. For the next day, I seen her spreading an oilcloth on the hall floor. And then James comes a buttling in with a lot of sand what the professor has baked and made all scientific down in his laboratory. James, he pours all that nice clean dirt onto the oilcloth. And then Miss Estelle sends for William, dear. William, dear, she says, we have decided, your papa and I, that what you need is more romping around and playing along with your studies. You ought to get closer to the soil and to nature, as is more healthy for a youth of your age. So, for an hour each day, between your studies, you will romp and play in this sand. You may begin to frolic now, William dear, and then James will sweep up the dirt again for tomorrow's frolic. But William didn't frolic none. He just looked at that dirt in a sad kind of way, and he says, very serious, but very decided, Aunt Estelle, I shall not frolic. And they had to let it go at that, for he never would frolic none, neither. And all that nice, clean dirt was thrown out in the backyard, along with the unscientific dirt. This has been the First Person Drunk Podcast, Danny's Own Story by Don Marquis, Chapter 8, brought to you, as always, by me, Miles Tabor, The Public Domain, and Delicious Whiskey. <laughs>